Thank you, guys. Well, track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Numbers chapter 20. Our series is called Lessons from the Wilderness. And we're going through the book of Numbers and we're learning some things about ourselves and about God. And it has been, uh, it's been helpful to me personally. I hope it's been beneficial to you as well. Well, let me go ahead and read. Uh, we're going to do verses 1 all the way through 13. So I'll read that, we'll pray, and we'll get to work. Numbers 20, starting in verse 1. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would please use this time to speak to us. We're praying that by your spirit, through your word, we would hear your voice loud and clear. And so we pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I read Numbers 20 and I say, are you kidding me? I mean, having been with the Israelites so long, you would think that at this point in time, they would have learned this lesson. They've grumbled in a very similar way before. And it did not go well for them. And you would think they learned that lesson, but here it is again. And we find it showing up. So what are the complaints? And, you know, as I look at this, I, I was thinking this morning, how timely, right? I mean, I don't know if you see very much complaining, uh, but it's certainly there. And uh, often you would think, okay, you know, maybe by, by now people would have learned. Uh, it's maybe not the greatest strategy for dealing with the moment, but nonetheless, God is patient with us and he keeps giving us these continual reminders. So what are the complaints? The first one is, it's a leadership issue. The problem is Moses. Look at verse three. They quarreled with Moses and then they made it a little bit more pointed and they said, you messed up, dude. Look at this. Look at this wilderness that we're in. Look at this scenario that we find ourselves in. Look at the lack of resources that we have. Look at verses four and five where they say, why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness? 
that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? This is the oldest trick in the book. It is assigning blame to somebody else. It goes all the way back to the desert, or I'm sorry, to the garden, to the very beginning. Uh, God made mankind in his image, male and female. He created them and they, they fall into sin. They commit rebellion against God and God shows up and he says, hey dude, what's, what's going on here? And Adam says, that woman you gave me, she's a problem. And then she says, whoa, 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 that serpent that you put in the, in the garden, he's the problem. There's this deflection of blame. And we find that over and over again throughout the scriptures. And we certainly find it here. What's the problem? You are. You, leader, you've done a poor job. You've brought us here. Why did you get us in this scenario? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? You, my friend, are the problem. That's what they're saying. And that's very similar to what I hear nowadays. It's very easy to find a scapegoat and to go, the leaders are the problem right now. Whether that's a church leader or leadership within the home or leadership in the society, all of us want to say, the reason why we're in a wilderness right now, the reason why we're in trouble right now is them. And we point our fingers and we use our speech to condemn them. But that's what's going on here. It is, first of all, a leadership issue, but it's also a reconstruction of reality. When, when you are frustrated, you begin to reimagine how things were previously and you change the story. So listen to them here. This is quite crazy, but they say, uh, verse three, they quarreled with Moses and said, if only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. They're able to look back at a very similar event, you know, years before where the complaints were nearly identical and God's wrath broke out against a, a group of people. And they then look at that and they say, I wish we would have been with them. That's insane. And in fact, I've said this before, but when you are in the throes of sin, there is something irrational about it. Sin is insane. It causes you to believe things that are not true. It causes you to reimagine the world in a way where you re-script it and you go, you know what? It would be better for us to have fallen with those other brothers of ours. That's insanity. They're looking at the wrath of God and they're saying, actually, if I had my way, I would have just died in the desert wilderness along with them. There's an insanity of sin. When you're in the throes of it, you begin to reimagine the whole scenario in a different way. Now, Isaiah critiques this in Isaiah 5.20 when he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. But that's what we do when we're sinning. We, we rewrite the script and we begin to change it to say, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine for me to feel this way, to think this way, to act this way. It is insane, but that's what they're doing here. And therefore they are reconstructing reality. And furthermore, they're despising God's sovereignty. When they look at the wilderness, they come to this conclusion. This place is terrible. And they're saying it to Moses, but ultimately it's a complaint against God. Verse five, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grains or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. This is a complaint against God and the arrangement that God has led them into. They are saying this to Moses, but ultimately it's condemning God. God, you brought us here. How dare you? 
you brought us here and this is awful. And we do the same thing, don't we? We look at the scenario and we begin to say, God, I cannot believe this is where you have us. Now, this is familiar to me because there was a season in my life where this complaint was, was almost identical for me. When uh, Ash and I were dating and she moved into Chicago and we separated for that season and I was leading a sports ministry, but I had a major surgery and everything just felt like it was falling apart. And so I was talking to God and I was saying the exact same thing. God, if this is what it looks like to follow you, I'm not sure I want to do that. I'm not sure that I want to, I don't know if I want to do ministry if this is what ministry looks like. If it looks so incredibly disappointing, this place that you have me in, it's terrible. And there's something about that that we can go, you know what, that's pretty honest. That's brave of you to say that. That's very brave. And I think that there are moments where you should have that level of transparency with God, and that is appropriate, but let's call it what it is. Here in the text, this is, this is complaining against God. This is no small thing. This is no trivial thing. What we are saying then is, God, you are not my God. You don't satisfy me. You're not good enough. In fact, it, it would sound something like this. I would rather be in Egypt without you than with you in the desert. I would rather be in Egypt without you than be in the desert with you. You, God, are not enough. Most of us would never have the courage to say that, but that's what we're implying when we complain against God's sovereignty. You have me here, and this is not where I want to be. I'm not sure that I want to be with you anymore. This is, what, this is what is called spiritual adultery. The Bible paints it in, all over the place in different places throughout the scriptures, but basically it would be like a husband saying to his wife, you don't do it for me. You're, you're not it for me anymore. Something else, someone else gives me satisfaction and pleasure. That's spiritual adultery when we say that to God. God, you are not enough for me. You do not satisfy. If this is where you have me, I'm not sure I want to be with you. Now, this is what is going on here. They're complaining. And what I found surprising about this is that this is a learned behavior. They're quarreling against the Lord. Look at verse 13. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. They were quarreling ultimately against God. But where did this come from? This was, this was a learned behavior. In fact, I was thinking through, okay, why was this so similar to a previous event? And how did those people not learn the lesson? Well, those people are gone in most cases here. And this is actually the next generation. This is the up and coming generation. And they're saying the same things that their rebellious parents said. This is a learned behavior. The Bible introduces a topic that, that reminds us that sin is not a private matter. Sin is not merely a private matter, but it affects other people, and it can be transmitted from generation to generation. There are issues that the Bible raises that remind us that sin is a communal reality, that when you sin, it's not just you that would have a problem, but it's you and other people as well. This is a learned behavior. They are grumbling against God. They are quarreling with God. Well, we need to be careful then with our complaints. We offer them up very easily, very readily, but we need to be careful that we are not complaining against God. 
Well, let's look now at Moses because he really is at the heart of our lesson today. Uh, Focus, the, the, the majority of the attention is given to him and Aaron. And so I just want to point out some things that we learn from, from Numbers chapter 20. The first is, when you follow God, you are not insulated from loss and disappointment and trauma. When you follow God, you're not insulated from those things. You're not, you're, you're not saved from them. And in fact, a lot of times people who are following God go through devastating loss. But you would think, okay, this is Moses. This dude talked to God face to face. He had one of the most privileged experiences in all of redemptive history. He is a man after God, and he does all these incredible things. And so you might think, clearly, he should have an easier path than most of us. But the truth is, this chapter reminds us that he goes through loss and disappointment and trauma. First off, he loses his sister. You fly by it in verse 1. It almost feels incidental, but, but I think if you stop there and you pause you recognize, whoa, this was significant. Look at verse one again. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zen and they stayed at Kadesh. There, Miriam died and was buried. It's just kind of there. And you might just think, oh, it's just kind of giving us a fact. But if you sit with it for a minute, what, what do you imagine that did to Moses? Now, obviously they had their conflict. They you know, sibling rivalry kind of stuff, some jealousy. They, they had a specific incident that we looked at a few weeks ago. But nonetheless, this is his sister and she dies and is buried there. He experiences then a trauma, a loss. And then we move forward and we find out not only did he lose his sister, his leadership was directly confronted. The community is saying, you screwed up, Moses. This is your fault that we're here. You have not done your job very well. So his leadership is directly confronted and challenged. And then we find out that he loses his blessing. The opportunity to lead the people into the promised land is no longer something he will have an opportunity to do. And finally, at the end of the chapter, and we didn't read this, but he also loses his brother. He and Aaron go up on a mountain and Aaron passes away. So he experiences the loss of his sister, the challenge of his leadership, the loss of his blessing, and the loss of his brother, all in one chapter. So what does that remind us to say? Following God does not prevent us from hardship. Following God does not prevent us from experiencing hardship. We go through all kinds of different losses and trauma. And if you don't have that as a category in your heart, then following God will be very frustrating. You have to recognize that following God will we'll include disappointments, loss, and devastation. God, nonetheless, is a good God, and he does reward us for our faithfulness, but we need, to be, we need to be aware that that is a part of the gig. Following God will include loss and trauma. Now, another thing that I was thinking about is, sometimes that trauma has a way of affecting us. And I know it's not here in the text per se, but I, I wonder if the reason why it was included here was to remind us that Moses was dealing with more than just leadership challenges. He lost his sister. And I wonder if that trauma also sh- was a part of the reason why he responded the way he did. He, w- he, was, he was hurt. He was wounded. He was going through a, a tough situation. And, and I think that that plays into the way that we respond. Certainly, the Bible in other places presents that picture. 
but we go through stuff. And if we don't, if we don't deal with it, then it has a way of showing up in our unhealthy responses to everything else. Some of us have been through incredible trauma. Some of us have been through incredible loss and we have to be able to own that and we have to be able to process that with God because otherwise it will show up in the way that we respond. In fact, I, I did a retreat day and uh, the fact that I had not really processed the loss of my aunt. And so then it just waterworks and all this like pent up sadness came out. But then as I began to review how I led through the year, I began to realize I had so much stuff that I hadn't really dealt with and it, it spilled out of me in all kinds of different ways. I think that's true in the way that we deal with the world. So let's look at how Moses responds in this situation here. It's inappropriate. It's an inappropriate response of Moses, but the people are complaining and so Moses and Aaron, look at verse 6, went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down. Kids, if you've got your coloring page, that's what you have in front of you. You got Moses and Aaron on their knees before God praying. They fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And God then gives them a, a very surprising instruction. In fact, this is not how I would fill in the blank. I would expect for God to be very frustrated with the people, but he gives a word of grace here. He says, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together, speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. God speaks, and here's what he says, give them what they need. I've heard their complaints. Bring that staff and your brother, gather the assembly, speak to the rock, and that rock will gush forth water that will provide for the community and for the livestock. So he gives a word of grace. I hear the people, I can give them what they need, and I will do that right now. That's a very surprising thing to me because I would expect for God to be angry, but God often surprises me. He speaks in terms of grace and patience. But what does Moses actually do here? How does Moses handle the assignment? Well, Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. What does he do? In his irritation, in his frustration, he hits something. Okay, this is Moses speaking my language because I get this, right? Like when I get pent up, when I get upset, uh, I, I want to hit something. And you go, oh, okay, dude. Uh, and even this week I did that. I, I, you know, I hit a door cause I was frustrated about something. I was like, Ugh. and like, what are you a junior hire? And uh, I think I am just in a 39 year old body, but there's this thing in me where I go, okay, when I'm so upset that I just get irritated and I don't know what to do with all of that. I'm like Moses. I'm like, you rebels, uh, let me hit something so you can, so you can see how frustrated that I am. So that's what he does right here. First off, he berates the people. God tells them, use your mouth to speak to the rock 
and water will come out. This is insane. Speak words of life. Speak words that will be a part of God's redemptive plan. Meaning he's going to use, Moses, you can use your mouth in this moment to speak to a rock and that rock can provide for the people. This, in, this influences my theology of preaching. This is a way that God uses communicators like me. Take your mouth and use it and it will provide life-giving sustenance for the people. This influences my theology of communication. God gives us the opportunity to speak words of life. It says, use your mouth and do this and it will provide good for others. Obviously, I'm spiritualizing a little bit, but it's all over in the Bible. God invites us to use our words, our lips, our tongues to do something that is actually a participation in the work of God in the world. Speak to that rock. But what does Moses do with his mouth? He uses it to condemn, to judge. He looks at them and he says, you rebels. He judges them. He condemns them. He berates them. He says, you guys, you're the problem. You think I'm the problem? It's actually you. He speaks words of condemnation over them. He's using his mouth then in an opposite way from what God intends. He's speaking to the people and he's saying, you guys, you are the issue here. Romans 12, 19 reminds us, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. It is mine to avenge, declares the Lord. God is the one who says, I will sort everything out. We should be careful then with how we condemn other people. Now, we're quick to do that. I'm quick to do that at least. But I'll look at somebody else and I'll say, they're the problem. And I'll speak words of condemnation and judgment. That's what Moses is doing here. He berates the people. Furthermore, he personalizes the rebellion and the solution. So he's looking at the scenario and he's going, you're the problem. Now I've got to fix it. Must we bring you water out of this rock? He's taking on the weight of this experience and he's putting it on himself and he's going, do I really have to deal with this right now? Haven't I been patient enough with you and with your forefathers? He's personalizing the rebellion and the solution. This is what uh, Paul Tripp calls um, expanding your circle of responsibility. Paul Tripp is a biblical counselor and he would draw a circle and say, this is your responsibility. You need to stay in here. And then there's other stuff that falls outside of the purview of your responsibility. So sometimes that's on other people or that's on God. But here's what we often do. Instead of staying in that area that that we're in control of, that we're responsible for, we want to build that thing out. And we want to take on additional responsibility. That's what Moses is doing here. He's saying, look, do I have to deal with this? Are you kidding me? Do I have to fix this? And this is not his to fix. This is God's work that he is engaged in. But he's expanding that level of responsibility. He's personalizing the rebellion and the solution, and then he is hitting the rock. Now, I, I've, I do this also, just so you're aware. I'm trying to highlight my, my own inadequacies um, so that you might do the same. But even this week, as we're, as we're trying to figure out a timeline for the building and you know, all these different things that are going on and all these different expectations. Some of you are like, let's go there today. It's cold out. Let's just get over there. And some of you are like, let's wait until January and get some work done. And, and, and I get to a point where I'm like, do I have to figure this all out? Right? I'm putting it all on myself. It's not even for me to do. There's a team of people involved with it, but, but I, I want to 
take it on myself. And then I get, I, I take all that weight on, I personalize it, I, I, I make it about me, and then I suffer the consequences of it. And that's what Moses is doing here. He is personalizing the rebellion and the solution, and then he hits the rock. He takes that staff, and he whacks the rock twice. Well, God wants him to understand that he has failed in this regard then. He did not trust the Lord. Look at verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Here's, what, here's what's going on. What Moses, what Moses did there was actually an, an action of mistrust. He took matters into his own hands. He took the staff literally in his hand and he hit the rock that God instructed him to speak to. So he did not trust God or God's word in this instance. Therefore, the holiness of God was assaulted. God said, speak to the rock, it will provide water. And Moses hits the rock. And so here's the impression then. If you were sitting there that day and you were watching this unfold, everyone get together, everyone gather in front of this rock. I've got the staff that God had instructed us to bring with and they're watching Moses do this and he's supposed to say, this rock is going to provide water for you. He's supposed to speak to it and it is supposed to provide. But instead he takes the staff in anger, I would say, and he hits the rock twice. And the impression then is Moses is mad. Now that is not what God wanted. God did not want them to come away with this, whoa, we probably shouldn't have complained so much. No, no, no. He wanted them to come, in, come away with an awareness of God not Moses. He wanted them to come away with the gracious provision of God and his ability to do something in an incredible way. But instead, what they get is Moses. So you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites. Therefore, you will not bring the community into the land I give them. So the weight of the critique falls then to Moses and Aaron. They acted in unbelief. They did not trust the Lord. They did not trust the Lord. Well, what's the connection to the good news of the, the gospel? In the New Testament, there's a very important paragraph in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul is speaking, the apostle Paul is speaking, and he's recounting some of these events. And so he puts it like this, and we'll put it up on the screens as well, but it says, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. What a fascinating thing to say. That rock was Christ? Well, here's what Paul looking back on these events would say, God was very present with them and Christ was there. And Christ was the rock. That rock was Christ. When we look at this story and we think through, what do we, what do we learn about the good news of the gospel? We learn that God is able to provide for us through his son, Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the one who was struck, who was smitten, who through him, he offers 
the river of life, so to speak. He, he offers life-giving water. He gives us everything that we would need. In Christ, we have salvation and we have God's own provision for us. When we look at this story, we identify either with the grumbling community itself or with the unbelieving activity of Moses. And we look at that and we go, man, we're not making a ton of progress here, right? The, the same stuff that I've been doing for years, I continue to do. I continue to act in unbelief. But God in love has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice for us. He is the one who gives life through his own death. He is the rock that was Christ. He is the one who is with us and for us. And so what do we do? We entrust ourselves to him. We place our faith in him. We believe on him for our salvation and for all that he can provide. And he is more than willing to be our savior and our God. So yes, we are grumblers and complainers. Yes, we often act in unbelief, but the Lord is gracious and kind to us. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us not to complain, Lord. Help us not to grumble. Help us not to be people who despise your sovereignty, who find ourselves in the wilderness and think, you know what? I just want to go back. I want to go back to how it was before, even if that means... Um, leaving you behind, God. Correct our faulty thinking. Help us to recognize that if you're with us, you are enough. That is enough. Lord, help us to trust in Christ the rock. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.